There's a popular view of Jewish history that views Jewish history as a series of binaries. Ashkenaz and Sfarad, mysticism and rationalism, Pshat and Drash. Basically, in this view, which I found out literally today as Heinrich Graetz is doing, Ashkenaz is very from, with a capital F, they reject philosophy in favor of exclusive Gemara learning, they read the Torah against Pshat, they enthusiastically embrace Kabbalah. Meanwhile, in Sfarad, they're sophisticated people of culture who read philosophy, are rationalists, and do Pshat, and that's why Ashkenaz needed a Haskalah led by men by greats. Now, these dichotomies fall apart at barest scrutiny, and we've covered in the past Ashkenazi Pashtanim, uh, we've talked about Sfaradim, who were just as mystically inclined as anyone else. And in fact, most of the important Kabbalistic works were written by Sfaradim. Uh, we've talked about how not every community fits in the binary of Ashkenaz and Sfarad, notably Italy, and numerous other things that were immediately brought up after Greats published. But my favorite buster of these binaries is a period of time called the Polish Jewish Renaissance, which went from 1550 to 1648 and it's really one of the most underrated time periods in Jewish history. Part of the reason it's underrated is that it didn't really have that much of a lasting impact, which is sad, and for sad reasons, namely the pogroms of Bogdan Chmielniczki, which terrorized the Jewish population of Poland, and the Renaissance we're talking about loses steam and is overtaken by... You know, killing thousands and displacing more, and the Renaissance we're talking about loses steam and is overtaken by movements like Sabbateanism and Hasidus and eventually Haskalah. This is a time period parallel to similar things happening in Polish society where Ashkenazi Jews in Poland were getting reacquainted with classic works of philosophy and figuring stuff out. It starts with the Ramah and his circle slash students. Okay? The Ramah, whose name is Ramosha Israelis, uh, who will be another episode because he is extremely important for the history of Ashkenaz. Uh, was well off, well connected, and he was what we what I describe as nobility adjacent. Uh, so he somehow got his hands on a Moranevuchim <clears throat> around 1550. He got his hands on it from Italy, which you know had the Renaissance going on at the, at the time too. Uh, so he starts studying it with his students, Mordechai Yafi, uh, who would later become known as the Lavush for the Halacha Code that he writes. We'll talk about that in another episode. Uh, at this time, the Ramah is in his 20s, and the Lavush is in his teens. They're just two young guys reading a book they got secretly, stuff that they're not supposed to know. It's great. Right. Okay. Soon the Ramah is quoting Aristotle in his correspondence with Rav Shlomo Luria, who is the Marashal, uh, which takes the Marashal by surprise, and he criticizes him for it. I want to save discussing that interaction for a later episode. <clears throat> One of the reasons I like this time period is that it doesn't fit neatly into the rationalism-mysticism binary, a binary which I often find pointless and frustrating. The mission statement of the Ramah-led Polish Renaissance, uh, and this is a quote from the Ramah, is, philosophy and Kabbalah express the same wisdom in different languages. The Ramah ends up being, for a variety of reasons, the guy of Polish Jewry. The regard in which he is held by later generations of Jews is extraordinary, and maybe the actual reason for Lagba Omer fire, no, Lagba Omer fires. Uh, he died on Lagba Omer, and uh, one of the customs was to light fires on somebody's yard site and may have gotten confused with uh, Shem Barachai later on, uh, which winds up, ends up allowing him and his students to be more open about his philosophical stuff. And again, uh, they're not saying reject Kabbalah. They're saying use it as a supplement to uh, use philosophy as a supplement. They're not picking between philosophy and Kabbalah, which is unique, because most of the time it ends up in a fight. And it is going to end up in a fight here, too, but they're not taking a diametrically opposed stance to Kabbalah. Okay? So there's the notable figures of this movement are Eliezer Ashkenazi, uh, Mordechai Yafi, the Lavush, who we talked about before, Ravarvim Horowitz, uh, <clears throat> the Maharal, kind of. 
He's more a uh, sophisticated anti-philosopher, but he was in the same circles and familiar with the sources that they were that was going on during this time. And the subject of today's episode, Rav Ephraim Lundschitz, the author of the Kliakar, one of the commentaries that appear in the standard Mikrod Gedolot Chumash. He's the subject of today's episode. My, my script said that at the end of the sentence instead of the beginning of the sentence. I ignored the script. Whatever. We'll, we'll throw it in. Okay. So, a note on sources. Uh, my main source was Seeing with Both Eyes, a book by Leonard Levine, which was really great, and I recommend it. Uh, it's pricey, but I, I recommend it. Uh, I shored up some of the biographical details, which the book was kind of weirdly short on. He started talking about biography and places and then got sidetracked by talking about his philosophy. Uh, So the uh, biographical details were shored up with uh, Wikipedia. Uh, There's also a good article in the Jerusalem Post about his views on wealth inequality, which I use for for my section on that. Uh, So let's get to the biography. So the biography goes like this. He's born in 1550, so he's born at the same time as the Jewish-Polish Renaissance. Um, he might have been the son of Rav Aaron of Posen. Uh, he says in the introduction to his books that uh, uh, he is the son of the Hagon, the, the, the great Rav Aaron. And there's only one guy who f- was famous enough to fit that description. Uh, but we don't have any source that says this is Ravaron of Posen. The significance of that is that Ravaron of Posen was anti-philosophy. There is a wild legend about the childhood of the Kliakar. Uh, I heard it in uh, Camp Derigolding many years ago. Uh, I cannot find a text version of it. Uh, there seems to be a recording of some sort uh, floating around online, but that's it. It involves magic and Satan and being thrown into pits and miracles and uh, lots lots of fun stuff for a 10-year-old, which I was at the time. Uh, there's one text that I found that alludes to it. Uh, it's a translation of a book about the town of uh, the, the Polish equivalent of Lunchitz. Um, and it says in a footnote, uh, when I translated it, I took out all that nonsense, which, come on. Give us the nonsense. Uh, okay, uh, so the Maharshal, who I mentioned before, of Shlomo Luria, is his primary Rebbe. Uh, Maharshal is another show and one I'm really looking forward to making because uh, he is fun. Uh, but what we need to know here is that the Maharshal is broadly anti-philosophy, which is why he reacts to the Ramah quoting Aristotle the way that he did. Um, so uh, the Kliakar becomes known from a young age as a great speaker. Uh, and that is an important thing for understanding his commentary, that the original form of the speeches is spoken. Uh, he makes his living as a guest speaker, as a scholar-in-residence, or a traveling preacher, whichever term is more prestigious. He, he lives in Lvov, though. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, the W's in Polish is weird. Um, okay, so... 1580, he publishes his first book, uh, Ir Giborim. Ir Giborim, sorry. Uh, it is a collection of his sermons, and it is, again, anti philosophy, uh, which is his background, right? His rabbi was a marshal. He might have had an anti philosophy rabbi as a, uh, as, as a, uh, as a father. Um, he takes a position in a argument between Eliezer Ashkenazi, who was pro-philosophy, and the Maharal, who was anti-philosophy. Uh, he does take a little bit of a centrist position. Uh, it's notable also that Eliezer Ashkenazi, Rav Eliezer Ashkenazi, had written um, a anti-anti-philosophy thing aimed at Rav Aaron of Posen. Uh, so one of the first things that the Kliakar interacted with about philosophy was a guy attacking his father, maybe. Um, So 1580, he's anti-philosophy. Something happens in those 10 years. Uh, Maybe he found his own secret chavruta about a book that was smuggled in. Uh, In 1590, he publishes a new book of sermons called Ololot Ephraim. And in the introduction, he makes a 
uh, sly but very obvious allusion to studying the Ramah's work. Uh, he like uh, says something about studying the Torah Tola, um, uh, about you know sacrifices, but it's also the title of the Ramah's work. Uh, and he makes various allusion allusions to uh, discovering philosophy, and his position is bro- is more pro philosophy in 15, uh, 1590. Uh, around 1601, he fell seriously ill, and he adds Shlomo to his name, one of the uh, customs that happens when people fall ill. Uh, they add a name to uh, confuse the uh, angel of death. Um, you know, the angel of death is very bureaucratic uh, in our religion. Whatever. <clears throat> uh, 16... Uh, 1604, he becomes chief rabbi of Prague, succeeding the Maharal. Uh, after he gets seriously ill, he writes the Kliakar. I didn't include the date in my script, which is sloppy. Uh, okay. Uh, he's, he becomes chief rabbi of uh, Prague. He succeeds the Maharal uh, after the Maharal dies in 1604, and he himself dies in 1619. Okay. Um, let's talk about his personal qualities before we get to the um, stuff about his commentary. Okay, uh, again, he made his living speaking. Uh, he has the qualities of a great speaker. He's confident. He is forceful. He's articulate. He's creative. He keeps you interested. Uh, he's not, you know, somebody who's going to go. Well, I don't. No, he he knows what he's going to say. Uh, he's got a script that is more uh, laid out than mine. Uh, He's maybe sometimes a little too enamored with his own cleverness. Sort of touched on it before with, like, in the introduction to Alolo Dufresne. He's like, hey, guys, 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 I'm learning the Ramon now. Did you notice? Did you notice? Right? Um, He, there's a thing called uh, pilpul, uh, which is sort of a derogatory term in Jewish, in, you know, Talmudic culture for arguments done for their own cleverness rather than uh, for, you know, for the understanding of the text. Um, I have never been able to get a good definition or a good example of pilpul uh, because everybody is like, that guy's doing pilpul. I hate pilpul. Uh, it seems to be like how drash is used sometimes in um, biblical commentary. Like, that guy's doing drash. Uh, it's not shot. Whatever. Uh, he, in a later work, he condemns Pilpul as being only done to impress people, and he says that he would know. That's why I did it. Okay? Uh, and Pilpul was going on uh, before the Polish Renaissance. Uh, one of the Ramaz Rebbe's is known as uh, uh, the, the, the originator of Pilpul, uh, and he purposely did not write anything because he was like, don't take any of these ideas seriously. Um, so there's a fine dividing line between stuff that is supposed to be taken seriously and stuff that is, it just makes a good speech and makes it more, you know, an interesting speech. Uh, the author of the book that I read, Leonard Levine, spends a long time going through, uh, you know, how seriously to take the Kliakar, uh, and, you know, has this whole theory. I recommend reading the book, uh, but, you know... Remember that the spoken word, that a uh, a sermon is the intended audience. Okay, uh, so he has a sense of humor. Uh, it's sort of a perm tower sense of humor. You know, sort of like let's see how creative I can get with the limited tools that I have. Uh, but you know, he wants you to be impressed. Okay. Uh, his style of commentary is, uh, I'm quoting uh, Levine here, uh, Tosefus style with sermonic digressions. Basically, uh, he's bringing uh, Midrashan to explain the text, uh, but he is going on, you know, digressions that go, um, that are from his sermons. Uh, in his intro, uh, he says, probably the thing I, I most, adm- the honesty and candor I admire most out of any introduction I've seen in um, I, I've seen in my time, uh, though he does say he's quoting a Barbanel. I should read that too. Uh, he says, "I'm trying to do pshat here, and I'm very frustrated with other contemporaries who don't stick to pshat in their sermons. Uh, but if my pshat doesn't work, it's drush. Okay, uh, it, it's it's honest. 
right? Uh, okay, so let's get to some notable ideas. I touched on, you know, philosophy and his embrace of philosophy after being anti-philosophy. Uh, he talks a lot about the legitimacy of philosophy as an area of study for a serious Jew. Uh, in his commentary on Bereshit, uh, he starts. He doesn't start off. He starts off with something else, which I'll tell you about later. Uh, he talks about, uh, like at the beginning, three paths to knowledge of God: uh, the written Torah, the oral Torah, and inference from works of creation. Right, being able to figure out stuff by observation, empirical observation, uh, which is you know, philosophy, science, whatever. Uh, he says the third path is for a select few. Uh, philosophers have good, valid stuff, but it's supplementary to Torah, right? Uh, so there is a little bit of an elitism here. Uh, there's a little bit of like only do it if you're if you're really confident, if you really know your stuff, uh, and it is supplementary to Torah. It doesn't replace Torah, which I think pretty much everyone would agree with, right? But uh, there's this um, what's it called. Uh, there's this attitude towards philosophy here which is not uh, exclusive, right? It's the Polish Renaissance, uh, Polish-Jewish Renaissance is very eclectic, right? We'll use whatever we have here. Uh, it's supplementary to Torah, right? Uh, so uh, he sees the philosophical path uh, to knowledge of God as legitimate, and he sees it more, more as a, uh, more, he sees it as a theme in Sefer Bereshit, okay? Uh, so, he talks about a mentorist that says that Avram comes to God, comes to the conclusion that God exists from inference from the sun. It's a mentorist about like, well, what's more powerful than the, uh, the sun? Well, you know, night. And he gets on to, he goes on from like, what's more powerful than this? And then he concludes there's one God. Uh, Rambam likes that mentorist a lot uh, because it's very philosophical. Uh, it's very like, oh, I arrived at this through logic. Uh, other more revelation-oriented philosophers will not like it as much. Uh, that's another thing. Okay, uh, so Avram comes to God from inference from the sun, and he sees the sun and the rising sun as a you know metaphor for inference or coming to God through nature. Okay. So when Avram, you know, sits in the setting sun, uh, sits in the rising sun, he's, you know, coming to uh, knowledge of God through inference from nature. Okay, uh, he also, in that vein, he talks about challenges to faith. Right? Uh, with Rivka, he talks about a little bit uh, about how the the two children fighting in her room uh, caused her to seek out more knowledge because her simple faith did, could not take her could not reconcile what was happening to her with, uh, you know, uh, with her simple faith, and she had to have a more complex faith afterwards, which I think a lot of people uh, right now could, you know, really understand. His his commentary on, res on Yaakov wrestling with angels is very interesting and very creative. Uh, so he quotes a medrash that says that the angel was Samael, okay, seen as, uh, you know, a... Uh, a bad angel, or in some sources, like a, a demon, right? So he sees the root of Samael as uh, Sima, which is to blind. And Samael was trying to blind Yaakov by throwing dust in his eye. The, the term that the Pusuk uses for wrestling is Valle Avek. Avak means dust. So this is a very creative kind of thinking about what that verb might mean. It's very creative with uh, with language and with words. It's actually one of his most striking qualities. All right, so this Samael is trying to blind Yaakov by throwing avak uh, dust in his eyes to lose his faith. Um, and eventually he gets named Yisrael uh, and against the uh, against almost the pshat, uh, the Kliyakar interprets it as one who sees God. And what causes Yaakov to win? The dawn breaking reminds Yaakov of Avram's inference of God from the sun, right? When dawn breaks, he's able to see, oh, of this, the, the challenges to faith that have been, you know, being thrown at me to try and blind me. Uh, I could 
go, uh, I could overcome them with, you know, philosophy. Okay? Um, one of the things that is unique about his ideas is that apparently there was, uh, people found out about Manichaeism. Okay? Manichaeism uh, is a religion that spread uh, very rapidly uh, from uh, Mesopotamia east. It's a religion that doesn't really exist today. Uh, it has come. It was a dualistic religion, meaning that there was this Mani guy who uh, claimed that he was the fighter of the uh, of the evil god. Um, for those of you who watch Game of Thrones, Lord of the Lord of Light is based on this kind of religion. Zoroastrianism is very similar. Okay, uh, so he see and he tries to interpret Avoda Zara, you know, idolatry, paganism as uh, Manichaeism, in other words, dualistic, right? Believing that there are two powers, one good, one evil, and they're fighting against each other, right? You find that a little bit in uh, some Kabbalistic sources uh, with the Sitra Ahura. Some of that sneaks into Judaism, but uh, we're mostly, we're pretty much monotheists, okay? Yitro, uh, the you know father-in-law of Moshe, who comes to the Jewish people and sees the truth of God, right? When you want to understand a commentator's understanding of uh, what re religious experience is, uh, look at their comments on Yitro, because they're they're going to say what caused Yitro to you know come to uh, the realization that there is one God, and then they'll talk about why they think there is one God, right? His comment on Yitro is the most fascinating I've ever seen. I'm going to read it to you in full. It's a long thing, but I'm going to read it to you in full because uh, it's wild. Okay? <clears throat> At that time, there were many among the peoples of Earth who had fallen into the error of Mani, who contended that there are two deities, one who rules over the good and the other over the evil. By their foolish opinion, both are weak, for the governor of evil is clever in evil doing, but has no capacity for good. It is obvious that the one ought that one ought not enter under his wings and accept him as God, for what fool will turn this way? As for the governor of the good, he has no power to do harm, even to the enemies of his faithful one, uh, faithful ones. In that case, it is vain to serve him, for the name same occurrence will happen to the one who serves him as to the one who does not serve him. Therefore, it is not fitting to accept him as a God. To accept both would also be difficult, for they contradict each other. Whom the first curses, the second blesses. Therefore, when Yitro first heard what God did for Moshe and for Israel, he had heard only the good things, for God performed all manner of good things for Moshe and for, uh, for Israel. Even though Yitro had heard of the splitting of the sea and the war of Amalek, he had heard only that the sea split for Israel and they walked on dry land, but he had not yet heard of the drowning of Paro and his host. Similarly, concerning the war of Amalek, he heard that they had come to wreak harm in Israel and that they were saved from them. Therefore, Yitro must have understood that the Lord of the Hashem brought Israel out from Egypt, i.e. he had only heard of the good things, namely the exodus from Egypt, and he supposed that this God is only the governor over good things but not evil. Thus he was not satisfied to receive him as God, for he thought maybe there is another God, greater still, who rules over good and evil equally. And Yitro came only to return his daughter to her husband. But after Moshe recounted to his father-in-law everything that, the Lord, that Hashem had done to Paro and to the Egyptians, i.e. all the evils and the plagues which Hashem had inflicted in Egypt and at the Red Sea, then he saw fit to declare that this God indeed rules over good and evil equally. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, and it is proper to receive him as God as to enter under his wings. So basically... Only good things happening would not be proof of God, because that would only prove that God ruled that God ruled over the good. Once he found out that people had suffered on the other side, that evil had been done to them by God, that's when he realized that God can that this God must control all. That is mind blowing. That is, that is saying that God is beyond good, evil, all those things. That we cannot comprehend anything 
about, you know, I, I left the script blank here because I'm just reacting to this as I read it again. Uh, and the idea that the fact that evil was done proves that God exists, that this dichotomy of good and evil is artificial. Uh, and that somebody who controls everything must really be God is just fascinating. Uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. Okay, let's move on. Uh, okay, if anybody wants to read that again, I'll post it. Uh, so, uh, rationalism versus mysticism. Uh, the, the binary that, that annoys me, right? It's very hard to put him in a box here. Right? We talked about how the Polish-Jewish Renaissance was eclectic and saw Kabbalah and uh, philosophy as using the same, as talking about the same things but in different languages, right? So he's not going to fit neatly into a rationalist box. He's also not going to fit neatly into a mystic box because he's not going to accept, uh, you know, things without evidence, right? Uh, he deals with philosophical theological issues like divine immutability and foreknowledge. He, you know, uses the method of the Rambam. We talked about this a little with uh, a little bit with Barbanel, right? He uses the method of the Rambam but doesn't accept his conclusions, right? He quotes the Zohar on occasion. Uh, he believes in mystical things like the temple as uh, axis mundi of union between heaven and earth. You know, the, uh, this place where. Um, you know, there, there is uh, commingling of heaven and earth that they meet, and, you know, that he gives a whole big thing about that. Uh, he also talks about letters of God's name involved in the creation of the world, uh, which is a very mystical idea. Uh, Levine claims that, A, some of the mysticism is him being clever, right? His him being showing how creative he can be, particularly the letters of God's name. Uh, he says that that's just showing off how he could like look at a word and take things out of it. Uh, and he tends to only quote mysticism when it's grounded in Chazal. Uh, but I think everybody can agree, mysticism was part of the sources that he saw as legitimate. Uh, and uh, he seems to have not been personally the kind of person inclined to mysticism, but he used it because it was the same concepts in a different language. It's one of the things I like about the Polish Renaissance. They didn't view things as like, oh, we can't use that source. Right? They're just like, look, whatever whatever works, right? Uh, here, he has some ideas that are, you're going to see. I tried to make a table of like, here's a rationalistic belief, here's a mystic belief, and I abandoned the table because his fits don't, his ideas don't fit into that binary. Right, uh, God. He says that God. Let me backtrack a second. Right, we have this whole problem where you know the Rambam says that it's uh, prohibited to believe that God can be physical, right? And you know theologically it makes sense, right? But we have all these descriptions in the Torah of you know God's hand, God's you know nostrils flaring, stuff like that. Old problem, been dealt with a lot. Here's a creative answer from the Kliakar. God appears to prof God doesn't have a body, but when prophets are getting their prophecy, he appears to prophets in the form of a person. Right. Uh, so the the idea of um, man being created in God's image, which is kind of hard to square if you're a rationalist. The Rambam spends a lot of time talking about uh, the difference between, uh, you know, uh, Tselem and uh, Dugma and stuff like that, right? He just solves it just saying he doesn't have a body, but he makes people think he does, right? Uh, and when he says that you shall not shed the blood of man because in man uh, God uh, created man in, uh, in God's image, right? Uh, he says that God, uh, Cleopar says, God does not wish to appear in that likeness when you murder, right? If you murder, then there's going to be less prophecy and less closeness to God. So he's harmonizing anthropomorphism, which is the term for like all those, uh, you know, uh, depictions of God that in, assume he has a body. So he harmonizes that with a rationalist way of thinking that says that God doesn't have a body with rationalist principles, 
Uh, but the Rambam would have a fit if he saw the way that he, the way that he solved this, right? What do you mean they perceived it as God having a body? They perceived something false. They perceived something, you know, something the opposite of true, right? Uh, it's a really neat example of how he is a rationalist, but will ac accept things that no rationalist would ever accept. And he sees himself as having license to do that. Okay? Uh, when it comes to issues like human action versus divine omnipotence, right? Uh, you know, human initiative uh, versus, you know, God will take care of it, which is a classic, you know, rationalist versus mystical uh, thing. Uh, he says, you know, it's there's a fuzzy line between human action and divine help, right? Yaakov worked hard. Uh and because he worked hard, God recognized the, the hard work and helped him succeed, right? Um, this kind of thinking is actually very helpful, right? Uh, there's a fuzzy line between the two that solves the problem, kind of. Well, kind of doesn't say that there is a problem, whatever. Uh, but this is, uh, you know, a useful way of thinking about it. Uh, God recognizes that I work hard and therefore, you know, my actions are rewarded. Okay. Um, he also has belief in astrology, but his belief in astrology is he's very rationalist about it. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. All right. There's a, uh, there's a measure that says that, uh, they looked at, uh, the, the Egyptian astrologers looked at the, uh, sign that uh, Moshe was born under. They saw Mars, uh, which is uh, red and would mean bloodshed. Uh, and, you know, that's why... Uh, and they told Moshe that if you take them out, there, there will be bloodshed. Uh, so the uh, Kliakar says, yes, it could mean bloodshed, but it could also mean uh, bloodshed in a, for, you know, good reasons. Uh, circumcision or sacrifice. And that's why the uh, Torah stresses that uh, as the, uh, there's a mentor that stresses that the blood of the carbon Pesach and the blood of circumcision as they were leaving Egypt, you know, uh, intermingle as they're uh, as they're about to leave. Those are very important because that is the blood that the sign uh, that Moshe is born uh, born under alludes to. It overrides like. A good interpretation of a astrological prediction could override the bad prediction uh, if humans take action about it, right? So he believes in a non-rational thing in astrology, but he believes it operates under rationalist principles, right? Hard to put that in the in in a column, right? He also wants to minimize miracles as much as possible, which is a classic rationalist activity when biblical commentary right we have you know this miracle um happening and we need to uh we need to make sure that it's not uh it's not a miracle we want to rationally explain the realm does this a lot Raul bog does this a ton of times we talked about it right so he wants to minimize miracles as much as possible right uh he says, why does the Torah tell, tell us that the world was full of water before anything was created? Because it wants us to know that when uh, Noah, when the flood happened with Noah, it was not an alteration of the natural order. It was not something that God didn't create until now. It was a reversion to a prior state. It, the, the world became like it was before, right? Um, Look, there is a serious theological problem if um, that miracles present, which is if Hashem knows everything and created the world, uh, why didn't he create the world in such a way that uh, he didn't need to uh, he didn't need to adjust it as things happen? That assumes that like, oh no, uh, Bnei Israel is going to run right into the Yamsuf. Uh, they're going to run right into the Red Sea. I got to split the sea, otherwise uh, they're going to they're going to be screwed. Like, why not just have built everything so that there's a uh, dry land for Bnei Israel to go to, right? Uh, so he he sees that problem as, and he tries to reckon, he tries to resolve that problem whenever he can. But he's kind of loosey goosey about what the natural order means. He's willing to futz with the definitions to make things make sense, and he also he does accept that God intervenes in the natural order, and. 
even sees the point of the plagues in Egypt to demonstrate that God does have power to do so. So he's rationalist up until uh, up until a point, right? He's uh, you know I want to work within the rationalist systems until it doesn't work. At the end of the day, he's okay with not knowing how to reconcile philosophy and and revelation, right? Uh, he has a comment on uh, the pasuk that says that God regretted that he had made man, which is, you know, right before the flood. And uh, his comment on that is basically, I don't, I don't know how this works. I don't know how God regrets something. I don't know how this works. I got no clue, guys. Uh, I don't know how that speech went over, but uh, he's willing to admit that he doesn't, he doesn't know how to reconcile. And I think we don't need to reconcile him either. We don't need to put him in the rationalist and or mystic thing, mystic box. Some of one, some of the other. He's eclectic. He doesn't, and there's a, he's a person, not a character. Okay? So that's the philosophical orientation about that. Well, let's talk about some things that he does pretty well. Okay? He can be very psychologically insightful. Okay? Um, he wanted, so when he talks about Avraham wanting his son to marry from his family in Aram and not marry the locals in uh, Canaan who were idol, idol worshippers, right? Uh, Kleoker asked the obvious question and was like, but his family is also idol worshippers. Uh, what's going on? So he's, he gives two, two explanations of this, which are pretty insightful. Uh, number one. Uh, if the wife was brought to Yitzchak from far away in Iran, uh, he wouldn't have his in-laws as corrupt influences around him, right? Uh, if he married somebody from Canaan, then he would, you know, be around his wife's family and able to be corrupted by idolatry. But, you know, when he marries Rivka, loving and Betuel all the way in Aram and not really, you know, affecting him, right? And he also says... Uh, intellectual belief are not inherited, right? You don't inherit becoming an idol worshiper. Uh, you only inherit personal traits, right? Uh, and he says that the Canaanites had bad personal traits. They were licentious is the, the, the word that is usually used. Um, and Avram's family, they only have the, uh, the, the religious, uh, religious ideology, which is not inherited, right? Uh, if you take Rivka out of an idolatrous home, uh, she doesn't inherit, you know, Lovin's trickiness, kind of. Eh. All right. Avram's family only has idolatry. Idolatry can be gotten rid of. Okay. He's also literarily astute, right? He pays attention to themes and motifs in a way that we've seen the Rambam, uh, Ramban, sorry, did that, uh, you know, that you didn't buy him sketch, right? Uh, but he does things that prefigure, you know, modern literary analysis. Uh, his analysis of Aesop as a character is very, very good and very, very observant, right? He notices the color red as a motif. He's got red hair color. They're red lentils. Uh, Midrash says that he's born under the red planet Mars, uh, he even talks about the uh, Edom having red hills, right? Uh, he even says that Asaph just really likes the color red. And uh, he says that the reason why he wanted the, the, the lentils was not because he was hungry, just he, he liked, not, well, he was hungry. It, he just liked the color red, okay? Uh, he also talks about hairiness being a uh, theme with Asaph. Right? Uh, he's hairy coming out of the womb. Uh, he's uh, to uh, his the the name of his uh, the the place where Edom is is Har Seir, which is like Sar, which uh, means hair. Uh, Yaakov uses goats to cover uh, to to cover his skin to pretend to be Esav. Uh, Seir uh, is a goat. Right, he notices all, and notice he's very attentive to the language here. Right, um, put all together. Right, he also says Asav. The name Asav is from the Shoresh, uh, the root Asa, which means ready-made, ready to rule and dominate. Right, 
Uh, Asaph comes out already having, you know, physical dominance over others. So it's really good literary analysis, and he paints a picture, uh, to use Levine's words here, of uh, mythical symbol of Israel's other, right? This, you know, dominant, bloodthirsty, everything that we're not is Asaph, right? Physical, uh, you know, non-intellectual, right? That he paints this picture of Asaph as like, you know, the opposite, right? Okay. Uh, some other notes which might be of interest to 21st century listeners. Uh, he has a reputation for being the best you're going to get in terms of uh, feminism in, uh, in the Makrot Godello. Okay? And then we'll talk about the Orachim a little bit, uh, you know, later on, hopefully this month. Okay? Uh, Levine has a theory here, which uh, I don't know... I don't think he expects to prove, uh, but he likes, and I like it too. Uh, in one of his earlier works, he says, uh, he, he quotes the, the Gemara that says, women are weak-minded, uh, and uh, Levine has a theory that he was confronted about this by a woman uh, in the community at a Shabbos table or something after the speech, and he changed his tune. And I like that idea shows that, you know, he took criticism seriously and he listened to people, okay? Uh, right? Uh, so he, more often than anyone else, is defending women against the charge of weak-mindedness. And again, this is going on parallel with, you know, changes in Polish society that are, you know, more emancipatory towards women, uh, especially, you know, upward... Uh, mobility in terms of, uh, you know, uh, money and stuff like that, right? So I'm going to read you his explanation of Chava's sin in the other Mauritian story, which most commentators are be like, yeah, Chava, Chava's wrong, right? Uh, and, you know, a lot of misogyny has been uh, laid at the feet of Chava, okay? Let's not kid ourselves, Right? Here's how he reads it, okay? Now, he quotes this medrash uh, that, and one of my favorite medrashim, because it's, uh, it, it's so interesting, the implications of it, that uh, Adam told Chava not to touch the tree, uh, but didn't tell, him, didn't tell her that that was not from God, that was from him, and the snake pushes her up the, uh, against the tree, uh, in order to prove that, look, nothing happened, and then that's what causes the sin, which really makes it Adam's fault, uh, and it's also a very self-aware medrash by the by Chazal. Anyway, he uses that medrash in an interesting way. Uh, listen up. Okay, now Ad Adam saw fit by light of his reason to make a fence around the law and to forbid his wife also to touch the tree, so she would not come to eat it. But Chava thought that everything he told her was commanded by God, and it was this misunderstanding of hers that gave the serpent the opening to mislead her, right? So, standard Chazal comment, okay? Uh, by this interpretation, we do not have to agree with Rashi. This is the only time in his entire commentary, according to Levine, I haven't read his entire commentary, that he straight up disagrees with Rashi, which was grounds to be fired, uh, from a uh, from teaching uh, during this time. Fun fact: the uh, the preference for Rashi goes back way a ways. Okay, uh, disagreeing with Rashi is big during this time period, and he says we do not have to agree with Rashi. Okay, who commented that the serpent went not to Adam but to Chava because women are weak-minded and easily seduced. We don't have to go with that Rashi. Okay, don't listen to Rashi who says women are weak-minded and easily seduced. Okay, that's what the Kliyak are saying. Even without Rashi's view, there is no difficulty, for the serpent wanted to prove from the case of touching that there was no danger in eating. But this argument would not have worked with Adam because he knew that God had not forbidden touching the tree, for he added that prohibition himself. Very basic thing that he's pointing out here, right? If the reason why, uh, if the reason, if the way that he got Chava to eat the fruit was to push her against the tree and say, see, nothing happened. It's not, it's not real, right? Uh, that wouldn't work on Adam because he knows, it's, he knows it's not real, right? 
it's not about her weak-mindedness at all. But he goes further. That would be just standard Chazel. He goes further than this. We may now offer another possibility. That Chafa was uncertain whether, A, 1, uh, the serpent's intention was for their good, that they should be like gods, knowing good and evil, right? And a lot of people reading the, the story have the same reaction, like, I don't see why that's bad. It's good to know good and evil. Uh, or, two, the serpent wanted Adam to die from eating the fruit so that he could marry Chava. It's a weird measure, okay? Uh, therefore, the serpent spoke to Chava, assuming that women are weak-minded and easily seduced. And also, hold on while I scroll down, assuming that she would give the fruit to her husband first. Chava therefore decided to... Okay, so, the snake mistakenly believes that women are weak-minded and easily seduced. Mistakenly. And, right? He's putting that on the bad guy. Chava therefore decided to test the serpent and added the prohibition of touching to the tree herself so that the whole argument would be about touching the tree and it would not be logical to have Adam touch the tree before her, contrary to the case with eating. Thus, when the serpent pushed Chava against the tree, Chava reasoned, now I know that the serpent is right. For if it was his intention that Adam die, why do you push me against the tree? What benefit would he have from my death? Rather, it is as he says, by eating the fruit, we will be as gods. Therefore, she gave credence to his words. Okay, just let's, let's recap a second, right? Chava is presented with this, uh, you know, snake as saying, if you eat from this, you will become gods. And he says, mm, he raises a good point. Uh, but I'm not sure whether he's doing this just to kill Adam to get to me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say that I'm not allowed to touch the tree. And then when she gets pushed against the tree, it's like, well, he didn't wait for me to give, uh, to uh, bring Adam over to get him to die first. Therefore... Right? Uh, there, therefore, he must be out for our own good, trying to tell us to become like gods. Right? Uh, number one, so a couple of things here. Uh, Adam is the bad guy for adding a prohibition without telling her. Okay? Chava is smart and purposely coming up with a smart plan to figure out what the snake is up to. Uh, she's not outwit. She's not outwitted by the snake. She just doesn't think that the snake is that evil to want to kill them both. What's what is the snake? Uh, what benefit does the snake get from you know having them die? Right. And it turns out it's just you know the essential, the the pure evil, whatever. Uh, and again, the snake wrongly assumes Chava is not smart. Right. The the embodiment of pure evil is also a misogynist. Okay. Uh, so, Avra, uh, for Avram and Sarah, he takes note of the fact that uh, Hashem tells Avram, listen to your wife, uh, you know, listen to your wife. He says that uh, her prophecy was stronger than her, uh, stronger than his. He said, uh, Kliakar says, Avram was politically dominant, but Sarah had better prophecy. Uh, this is significant. As we saw with Asaph, he doesn't like political dominance. And we'll get to more about this later. Uh, he val he the the he's putting the stuff that he values on Sarah, not Avram. Okay, look, st he's not all the way up to 2022 standards. Uh, he sees modesty as the ultimate accomplishment for Sarah. Right? Uh, he has a comment about how, like, you know, her. Uh, being modest was the same as Avram's accomplishments, which, you know, whatever. Uh, he sees, he also has a comment about women being stingier with guests. Uh, that, uh, Levine points out, may have been based in reality of the time, uh, where women were controlling the pocket, were, were in charge of budgeting. Uh, and men would just be like, oh, those stingy women who are only controlling the pocket. It's still not great, but, you know, it may have been based in reality as opposed to being based in, you know, just, uh, you know, just sexism. Here's an interesting passage. Levine points out this passage and says it's really interesting, and I agree with him. Uh, and he, it's really interesting, and he doesn't know what to make of it. And uh, I agree with him, okay? So... Uh, 
This is talking about a Pusuk in Devarim, where it's recounting B'nai Israel telling Moshe, you go and hear what Hashem says, uh, and uh, then you, like at Harsinai, you tell us what Hashem says, and then tell us, uh, and then tell us, because hearing God's voice is too powerful. We died a couple times, right? That whole medrash, right? So he points out that the the word that the Bnei Israel uses in Moshe's speech, whatever the whole thing, uh, is at, which is the second person feminine pronoun. Ata would be a male pronoun, right? Uh, so he's like, "What's what's up with that? Why are they?" talking to him like he's a woman, okay? Rashi says on this uh, that you have, this. what this means is you have weakened my strength like that of a woman. You know, I have suffered so much pain on your account that you've weakened my hand, for I see that you're not pious enough to want to approach God out of love. Would it not be better for you to learn from the mouth of the Almighty rather than from me, right? Uh, you know, you guys annoy me so much that I'm like a woman in my lack of strength. That is Rashi's uh, explanation here, right? Uh, but Kleokar has a problem with this. Uh, it's not sufficient. For does not God respond? They did well to speak thus. Furthermore, why is the first pronoun? Uh, why is the first pronoun ve'ata in the male gender? And why is the word verb yomar indicating gentle speech? This is based on uh, Medrash. Uh, about Harsinai, right? Followed by the Atudaber, indicating tough talk. Okay, so he's going to give an explanation. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I don't have a 100% handle on this, but uh, he's clearly saying something pretty interesting. Okay, the explanation for all this is that in proportion as the power of matter is weakened, so is the power of the intellect increased. The wisdom of the elders is proof of this. I don't know which elders, whatever. Uh, therefore, Moshe was able to hear the voice of Hashem and not be aroused by it. I don't know aroused mean here. Uh, hopefully not. Okay. Uh, for his material strength had already weakened like that of a female by his abstaining from marital relations and other practices of abstinence. You can receive the gentle speech of the Shekhinah, even if your material strength is that of a male, and you are not weak as a female. However, you can also receive even tough talk since your material strength is weakened like a female. For Moses... Face was like the sun shining on every side. Uh, therefore, the matter in him was purified. <clears throat> okay. What this might be saying, I don't have a 100% handle on this, is that Moshe needed to have his physical strength weakened to increase the power of his intellect so as to attain a higher level of prophecy. And he needed to be physically weakened on like a woman. So, is this sexist for saying that women are weaker than men? Yes. Is it also interesting that he is saying that in order to obtain a higher level of prophecy, Moshe needs to make himself transcend gender? <clears throat> That's interesting. Somebody could do something with that. Right? Again, we can't throw him in a box. The binaries don't work here. Which... You might be saying too, right? Uh, binaries don't work here. Throwing him into, you know, progressive, sexist, right? They don't work here. He's all over the place. And no, he's nowhere and everywhere all at once, right? Now we get to uh, the thing that's most often pointed out about his commentary: social criticism, uh, namely the fact that he hates the rich. Uh, okay. So, it's usually the first thing brought up about the Kliakar. I would have loved to talk more about this, uh, but the main article on the topic, which was in Hebrew, and I, I worked on trying to understand, on, on my academic Hebrew to try and understand what was going on, uh, but I wanted to consult the sources that he, he, uh, that he quoted, but he quoted the, the, the author of the article, uh, but he quoted them using page numbers for an edition printed in Lublin. Who does that? Quote, tell me which Pasuk this Kliakar is on. Don't tell me page three in, in Parsha Bereshit. Whatever, okay. Uh, so, uh, literally the first comment. Uh, I Remember how I said that he doesn't start off his commentary with the three different ways of getting to God? This is what he starts his comment off. Right? He talks a little bit, but at the end he's like, and also because gold, which comes from the north, opposes the Torah... 
gold gold comes from the north in the I think in the Ghanaian uh, you know river directions whatever uh, and then also you know north in uh, Tanakh is seen as a bad direction like the north will the, from the from the north the trouble will come right so he says gold opposes the Torah and they generally flee from one another money and Torah cannot coexist according to the Kliyakar. Okay, uh, before I get to how deep it goes, think of the guts this guy had uh, to speak and write about how the rich and powerful are bad when he makes his living uh, speaking at, uh, at you know, community uh, places where the rich and powerful are funding it. Uh, he seems to have gotten away with it. I guess he was a good speaker, uh, but he had guts, okay? Uh, he says the wealthy are generally the powerful. They use brute force to establish their dominion over the scattered sheep of Israel. They oppress people among them. Right? Pretty standard criticism of the rich. They they they, they rule over. They use force to rule over. Uh, you know, the the poor. Right? And the poor are oppressed. He doesn't stop at criticizing the presently rich. He criticizes a mindset that sees uh, wealth as the be-all and end-all, right? Um, there's this thing called prosperity gospel in America uh, where, you know, if you do what uh, God slash Jesus says uh, and you are religious, then God will reward you with wealth. Turns out it's way older than that because he's already talking about it. And he says, uh, you know, he, he condemns people who do misvote so God will make them rich. Quote, in this topsy-turvy generation, all deeds have been spoiled, since the hypocrites have become numerous and show so many qualities of piety openly, when all their purpose is to achieve respect and honor, or sometimes their desire is money and they hope to achieve it by asceticism, right? They want, they're doing all this because they want, you know, first of all, honor and prestige, but also <clears throat> they want, you know, to do mitzvot so that they will get money. And he's criticizing that mindset. <clears throat> he's even a little bit satirical sometimes. Uh, the context of this, and I haven't seen, I, truth be told, I haven't seen the actual comment this comes from because the the sources, but I know from the language that he uses that he's talking about, uh, or at least alluding to, a Gemara which talks about a uh, discussion between Rabbi Akiva and Turnus Rufus, who is a Roman uh, nobleman, uh, and the, nob the, the Roman nobleman asked Rabbi Kiva, if God, uh, if God created poor people, then why do you give charity to them? Uh, because he clearly wanted them to be poor. Uh, and Rabbi Kiva says the reason why is uh, so that uh, we are saved from Gehenna, from hell, uh, by giving charity. Right. So I like this Gemara a lot. Uh, because it said, <clears throat> what it's saying is that wealth is not yours, and you didn't get it by your achievements. You got it just because God gave it to you, and the whole purpose of it is to give it to other people. Uh, I like this Gemara. He does not like this Gemara. Uh, in it, <clears throat> here's his quote. In any case, the poor man has reason to complain of the nature of judgment. Why should such a sentence be given by the Holy One and Blessed One, that his fellow man be given a double share of wealth in this world? And then, because he supports me, he will be delivered from the punishments of Gehenna as well. While I have nothing, let me have the wealth, and I shall be delivered by hell by giving him. Right? Uh, you know, the poor man is going like, why didn't I get picked to be wealthy? Why do I have to be the person that's uh, being uh, that's helping you with your salvation? And there is, there is a good point here uh, that relates to giving. That uh, you know, if you're giving to feel good about yourself uh, and not to actually help the other person, that becomes a problem. Uh, he's he's again, as I said before, he's psychologically astute. Um, what's his objection to wealth based on? Uh, his objection to wealth, as far as I can tell, and again, I haven't seen all the sources on this, but this is based on a couple of comments that I did see inside. <clears throat> it's not about jealousy, obviously, and it's not even primarily about inequality. It's about what it does to a person. The Kliakar 
first and foremost, is a moralist. He cares about morals and ethics. He cares about people being the best people they can. Right? And uh, I'll, bring, I'll tell you about a comment, the story of Reuven God and the half of Shiva Menashe who come to Moshe and say, actually, we like this land that's on the east side of the Jordan River. We don't want to go into Eretz Yisrael. Right? Uh, and he notes, a, I think he quotes a Medrash that says, the tribe of God spoke first because they had um, the, they were the most rich with cattle or money or whatever. Uh, and he, his comment on that is, yeah, of course they did, because that's the arrogance that money gives you, right? His objection to wealth is not, a, it, it's not about jealousy, it's not about inequity, it's about what it does to you. And it creates arrogance. In his view, arrogance is intrinsic to wealth. We tend to think uh, of wealth as like, you could do good things with it, you could do bad things with it. The Kleokar says, no, you can't do good things with it. It's intrinsic to wealth. It is not a personal flaw revealed by wealth. It is the corrupting source itself. And look, there's something to this. Okay? There's been a bunch of studies that uh, I've seen that make the case that wealth and power sort of turn off the parts of the human brain that care about other people. And I'm not saying that every rich person you've ever met or is listening to this podcast is a terrible person, but I am saying it is something to be cognizant of. Right? Um, I... I looked up a bunch of uh, studies. I can't like you know source them uh, by uh, audio, but um, luxury cars are less likely to stop for pedestrians crossing the street. Uh, wealth makes you less able to recognize other people's emotions. Uh, poor people in you know uh, in in uh, studies and like exercises that happen in a controlled setting in a you know in an environment right poor people are actually more generous than rich people uh, even when just read words about money people are more likely to be selfish than a than a control group he wasn't in favor so look Cleopatra's not a communist okay uh, I say that uh, both to defend and to uh, both to defend him against some people and to disappoint some others. Uh, he wasn't in favor of abolishing private property. In fact, one of the comments immediately after, uh, immediately after the first comment in Bereshit, one of the comments in Bereshit is about how like uh, God dividing between the land uh, between the the water and the uh, the heavens is about like you know how you have you have limits and you have private property whatever. Um, he doesn't really, as far as I've seen, and I could be wrong on this, he doesn't really idealize poverty from what I've seen. He quotes a Pusik that is like, I uh, quotes a Pusik that says, you know, uh, I valued poverty because, uh, I, to listen to your statutes, right? But, uh, if you value poverty, you want people to be poor. I don't think he wants people to be poor. I think he wants people to be comfortable. He wants, and... He wants as much as possible to minimize the uh, corrupting influence of wealth, right? So, I'm going to conclude by first telling, talking about, okay, when, do you, when would you use a Kliakar? Or when would I use the Kliakar personally? And then you could take that advice or you could not listen, listen to that advice, okay? Okay. Uh, I would say if you are looking for a Dvar Torah, you have to give a speech on something, right? The Kleokar would be an excellent resource, right? Because they are speeches, right? Uh, it's a problem sometimes when you're looking for a Dvar Torah uh, and you're reading Rashi and you go like, oh, so that word means that word. Okay, that that's not a speech, right? You have to, right? The Kleokar is going to give you a point at the end of your speech. Right? He's going to give you, and it's also going to be creative. It's also going to get people's interest. These are tried and true speeches that he's given you. Okay, I, That's when I would use the Kliakar. What can we learn from the Kliakar in general? First of all, I think that the attitude that the Kliakar has towards wealth, while, you know, 
I think that people who fund our communities are, uh, you know, doing so, uh, are, are good for doing so. I think that in, in, in an affluent community like the modern Orthodox community that I'm a part of, and maybe the wider Jewish, Jewish community as well, and a community that's, you know, become wealthy in so short of a time, historically speaking, I don't think we're so cognizant of the dangers of wealth and the dangers of having influence or political power. And I think the Kliakar is a reminder of, hey, be careful. Take, keep track of yourself. Make sure that you're not forgetting about people. There's this wonderful story that I've heard, uh, and it's such a good metaphor uh, for uh, for so many things. That uh, you know, uh, it starts as a typical Hasidic story that uh, there's uh, there's a rabbi who's collecting charity, and uh, there's a miser. The miser doesn't want to give money, uh, so the rabbi. Uh, goes and takes a uh, and says uh, look points at a mirror and says uh, what's that he says well it's a mirror and like how does it reflect back and like well there's a silver uh, well it's made out of glass and like but the windows also made it and he's all like well, the windows also made out of glass and like oh well you see there's a silver behind that that reflects back at you right uh, so the rabbi goes and takes that mirror and he you know, scrapes out the silver from behind the, uh, the the glass and says, okay, so what can you see now? He says, oh, I can see, you know, just like a window, right? Silver, ref- silver money reflects back at you, right? And uh, the more that you build up, you, the more you'll see yourself and not out the window at others, right? And you got to some, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that we should all take vow, vows of poverty. I am saying that we have to work on ourselves to scrape away the silver as much as we can sometimes. Okay. Uh, second thing we can learn from the Kliakar. Uh, reality doesn't really fit into neat boxes or binaries. He's not neatly rationalist or mystic. He's not neatly pshat or drash, right? And... I think it's significant that the thing that the Kliakar sees as the, you know, primordial idolatry is not, you know, polytheism that most commentators or most thinkers will see, but dualism, right? A situation where there's a good god and a bad god, right? He uses Manichaeism as like a synonym for idolatry in a lot of different places, right? The biggest evil for the Kliakar, besides money and rich people, uh, is dualism, sorting the world into good or bad. The word Manichaean actually in uh, in uh, English today means someone who uh, a, a worldview that sorts everything into black and white, right? But God isn't black and white. God isn't even gray or multicolored. God changes colors depending on where you're standing. God encompasses so much more than mere good and evil. The world God created and the people God created in God's image are of infinite complexity. And to deny that complexity is to not deny God. So we'll always come back, I think, in this podcast to the misfits, right? And how the fact that the Kliakar doesn't fit into any of the boxes is what makes him so interesting. And that we need to allow people, we need to think more outside boxes and we need to do a better job of allowing people to explore outside boxes. Uh, and that's the Kliakar. I hope I hope you like this and I hope the uh, turnaround for the next episode will be shorter.